There was a commercial on TV a while back, you might remember it, there were three mechanics sitting on the hood of a car eating their lunch while the service manager had the frustrated owner on the phone telling him, I've got my best men on it right now. We can relate because we've all had that experience of something we've left for repair taking way too long and wondering what they've been doing all the time that it's been there. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. 40 days after he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven. While his disciples looked up, wondering, two men appeared and said to them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. That was 2,000 years ago. It begs the question, what has the Lord been doing all this time? Well, let me back up for a minute. We understand that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. We know, too, that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some would count slackness, but he's long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And so we're therefore not challenged, we're not stumbled, that it's been nearly 2,000 years since the Lord was physically on the earth. So when I ask, what has the Lord been doing? It isn't to complain or to be critical, not at all. On the contrary, it's to celebrate because Jesus has been doing some amazing things. I want to talk to you about three particular things, three very personal things that Jesus has been doing and is now doing for me and for you. At first, Jesus is all about perfecting you. Hebrews chapter 10 states, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. After he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down at the right hand of God, for by one offering he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. This Greek word that comes to us perfected means to complete, to accomplish, to finish, to fulfill, to make perfect. When I was first a Christian, there was a lot of bumper sticker theology. Sitting in traffic behind Christians is where I first encountered the phrase, ready or not, Jesus is coming. Also popular was get right or get left. And my boss is a Jewish carpenter. Anybody ever have that on their car? You can admit, God bless you. Yes. My boss is a Jewish carpenter. Two of the most common messages were, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. And be patient with me, God's not through with me yet, or no, God's not finished with me yet. And actually, those sentiments are good. They shouldn't be used as an excuse for bad behavior. Nevertheless, they are accurate in that every Christian is a work in progress. The verse we quoted says, He has perfected forever them that are sanctified. Does that mean He is done, that the work is already finished? Well, yes and no. It is finished in the sense that he will absolutely complete it. Jesus sees you complete already because he knows what he's doing. But all you need to do is look at yourself if you're a Christian and you'll see that you are far from perfect. The perfecting we are talking about takes place in three stages. First, there's a once for all, a positional separation unto Jesus Christ, the moment of your salvation. You are separated to the Lord, and He begins this good work in you. 
And then there is a practical, progressive holiness in a believer's life while you're awaiting the return of Jesus Christ. You are to be growing more and more like Jesus. And third, when you're resurrected or raptured, you'll be changed into his perfect likeness. So that's what's going on in the lives of Christians. Saved, being sanctified day by day, finally glorified when you're with the Lord. This threefold work of perfecting you is captured in this incredible promise from Philippians. It's chapter 1, verse 6. It says, Being confident of this very thing, he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. The work has begun. It will be ongoing until the day of Christ Jesus when he will complete it. The day of Christ Jesus is that day I see him face to face at his coming for me either when he resurrects me after death or when he raptures me if I live, uh, before, uh, if I live uh, until his coming. We read in Romans 8, 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now this is often misunderstood to mean you are predestined or not to become a Christian. But it isn't a verse about getting saved. It's about what happens to a Christian after they're saved. After you are saved, you are predestined to be conformed into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. It means what we've been talking about. God who began that good work in you will complete it until that day. Now, what is simply but wonderfully being taught is that God will continually perform his work of making you more like Jesus Christ until you're either resurrected or raptured and that work is finished. And this is what the Apostle John understood when he wrote, Beloved, now we are children of God. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Charles Stanley puts it like this. He says, Jesus Christ is actively working within you to shape your character and empower your obedience. What does practical sanctification look like? Well, if you read the biographies of saints who have preceded us to heaven, you'll note that they all grew more and more sensitive to sin. As the Lord worked with them, and grew them up, as it were, and matured them, they grew more and more sensitive to sin. For example, 18 years after his conversion, the great apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, I am the least of the apostles. I do not even deserve to be called an apostle. Six years after that, in Ephesians 3, 8, he wrote, I am less than the least of all God's people. So he said, I, I don't even deserve to be an apostle. And then he said, I, I'm the least among all God's people. And then five years after that, he wrote in 1 Timothy, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Not I was the worst. He says, but I, I'm the worst. What was the matter with Paul? Had he become worse? Was he backslidden at the time? Well, no. He only realized more and more that God was at work perfecting him. Along those lines, Christopher Ashe wrote, when we first repent and believe, we do not then leave repentance and believing. We need repeated reminding because by nature, we will move on from the simple gospel of daily repentance, daily taking up the cross, daily faith to a supposed higher life 
in which repentance and faith are too ordinary and simple to be practiced. Every scripture calls us today in some manner to repent and believe afresh for the Christian just as much as for the non-Christian. I was scoping out our slideshow this morning as I was waiting for um, church to begin. There's an A.W. Tozer quote that's interesting. He says, we have not come for information, but for transformation. And I think what so often happens in the lives of Christians is that we repent and believe and we get saved and we start this magnificent journey of the Lord uh, perfecting us. And then we sell out to information and we forget about transformation. And we don't think that we need to repent, that we need to go on believing, that God wants to meet with us each time we come together. It's all right to be concerned about the other guy, the other gal, bring your friends to church, that kind of a thing, and hope something will happen in their lives. We should hope something would happen in our lives each time we come together, that there would be a new, uh, fresh experience of the Holy Spirit, a deeper understanding of these things. And so Christian maturity, it isn't growing insensitive to sin, it's growing ever more sensitive to the subtleties of sin so that we might cooperate with the perfecting work of God. Everyone here, myself included, obviously, is called upon to repent and believe every time we encounter the Lord in His Word. If you're not a Christian, God is showing you your need for salvation. That's the sole reason that you are here today. Whether you were invited by someone or whether you felt an inner prompting to come or uh, whether you were drugged here by your family, uh, it doesn't matter. The Lord brought you here to show you your need for salvation. Jesus has delayed his coming these 2,000 years on your behalf because he is not willing that you would perish but that you would receive the forgiveness of your sins and gain eternal life. That's what these two days or these 2,000 years have been about. It's about all the people in our world who are not yet born again, who have an opportunity yet to hear the gospel and to be saved. The Lord is coming. Make no doubt about it. There are maybe eight times more references to His second coming than there were to His first coming. Nothing is more certain than the second coming of Jesus Christ preceded by a great tribulation that's coming upon the whole world. The only thing that's delaying that is the heart of the Lord for the lost so that you will be brought into his kingdom. We've been tossing around this word perfect. Ask yourself, am I perfect? Am I morally, internally perfect? And the answer is, of course not. And because you're not, you cannot go to heaven. If you repent, believing that Jesus Christ died for your sins, God can accept you in Jesus Christ and he will begin his good work of perfecting you and he will finish it in that glorious day. Now, if you're a Christian, Paul once said to us, follow me as I follow Jesus. And that would include repenting of sin that you are becoming ever more sensitive about. If the Apostle Paul, who from our understanding, I mean, he, he would cringe if, to hear this and, and all, but from our understanding, you know, he's been called the greatest example of, of Christianity throughout history. Uh, and he would say, well, yeah, here's my example. I'm the least of the apostles. I'm the least of the people of God. And I'm a big bad sinner because the Lord is showing me more and more uh, just the depth and, and uh, 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 you know, of, of internal indwelling sin. Uh, and so... Paul would say, hey, follow me. Follow me into this wonderful adventure of repentance and believing of constant transformation. 
That's what real Christian maturity is. It's the constant transformation of our character to make us more like Jesus Christ. So let's be thinking about what the Lord is showing us about repentance and about what we're going to say to him because as our service ends today, a little bit later, we're gonna have the opportunity to reflect on what the Spirit of God is saying to us through God's word. And especially if you're not a believer, we're gonna invite you to uh, come to Christ, to believe in Jesus Christ and give your life to him. Now I said there were three things Jesus is doing right now for you. Uh, the first is perfecting you. Second, Jesus is all about praying for you. In Hebrews 7.25, it says, Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, this verse is packed with great stuff, and it pairs up nicely with what we've just talked about regarding Jesus perfecting you. It says here, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. The word able means he has abundant power to save. He is able to do it. There is no doubt about it. It's going to happen. Now, today we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. His resurrection, among other things, displays his power over sin and death and hell. It shows his power to save. Only Jesus saves. And he shows that power by destroying the devil and death and hell by coming out of the tomb on that first Easter morning. Now by save, it's the entire process of we've just discussed, your initial salvation when you're born again, but also his perfecting you until you see him face to face and are finished. I've often heard this phrase to the uttermost explained as if it was from the guttermost. Ever heard that? He is able to save from the guttermost uh, in the idea that no one is beyond the Lord's ability to save. And that is certainly true. No one is beyond the Lord's ability to save them while they have breath, while they have life on this earth. It's appointed unto men once to die and after this comes judgment. But as long as you're alive, before you die physically, you can come to Jesus Christ. He can save you from the guttermost. But what this really means to the uttermost is that you will definitely arrive at the final destination of being conformed into his image. Jesus is the uttermost. You will be saved unto the uttermost. You will be like Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the perfect man uh, if you want to know what God is like and if you want to know what man should be like, you just need to look at the life of Jesus Christ and uh, emulate that in the power of the Holy Spirit. And as promise is being made to, it says, all those who come to God through him, you come when the gospel is preached and you respond to it. No one can come to God on their own, but everyone can come. You come because the grace of God acts upon your heart, freeing your will to be able to say yes to God. If you're not a believer, God the Holy Spirit is here to show you the Savior and to show you your sin and to thereby draw you to Jesus Christ. Now, so far, this is mostly a restatement of what we just learned about being perfected. What is new and wondrous is we read that Jesus always lives to make intercession for you. And we would just simply say, Jesus prays for you. Stop and take that in for a minute. When's the last time you really thought about what it means that Jesus Christ is in heaven praying for you? 
Then read again where it says, He lives to pray for you. It doesn't just mean Jesus is alive. Of course He is. It's like when we describe someone who is so passionate about someone or something, we say, He lives for that stuff. You ever, you ever talk about somebody like that? They're just so into what they're into that you say, man, He lives for that. He loves that. The Scripture says Jesus lives to pray for you. Not just us in general. You know, we have all these blanket prayers. Dear Jesus, I pray for the world. Thank you. Amen. What have you been doing? I've been praying for the world. Wow. How long did that take? Ten seconds. If you take the amen off and the dear Jesus off, I'm down to three. You know, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's a big prayer from a big heart. If your heart is right, that's it. But Jesus doesn't pray. He says, Jesus lives to pray for you. It's mind-blowing. It's not uncommon for people to go on a pilgrimage to some supposedly holy place to wait in line to meet and be prayed for by some supposedly holy person. The Pope, for example, he's a big deal when he travels. People can't wait to be blessed by the Pope. Pope Francis concluded his trip to Asia with an open-air mass for a rain-drenched crowd in Manila that the Vatican and the Philippine government said drew 7 million people the largest crowd ever for a papal event. Seven million people trying to catch a glimpse of the Pope. All the while, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the Savior who died, is praying for them. It's mind-boggling. Let me state that a different way. Christians can sometimes wonder, on account of circumstances they find themselves in, if Jesus hears their prayers. You ever wonder? I mean, I think you know in your heart of hearts if you're a Christian, Jesus hears you, but it doesn't seem like He does because your situation doesn't change. Well, here's something interesting. Not only does He hear your prayers, He has already been praying for you about your circumstances before they ever happened. The night before He was crucified, Jesus had this to say to Peter. The Lord said, Peter, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. What a tremendous power-packed verse that is. A severe trial was coming Peter's way. The devil himself, not just some junior demon earning his black smoke or whatever you earn as a demon. <laughs> I was going to say wings, but I don't know what they earned. But uh, not just some junior, de the devil went to heaven, kind of a, a la Job, and said, I want to sift Peter like wheat. And the Lord knew about it. And Jesus prayed for Peter ahead of time. Peter said, yeah, that's never going to happen. I would never do anything like that. And we know that Peter would then deny the Lord three times. But guess what? His faith did not fail, and he would return to the Lord. And not only that, he would go on to strengthen other believers with a tremendous evangelical ministry. He'd write two epistles that appear in the Bible and probably dictate uh, the Gospel of Mark. And so Jesus, this all started when Jesus looked at Peter and he said, Peter, this hasn't happened yet, but here's what's going to happen. And I've prayed for you that when it happens, you're going to get through it. You're going to stumble a little bit, but you're going to get through it and, and you're going to come out of it a stronger Christian. Do you ever, 
Did you ever go through a trial? It's kind of a rhetorical question, but did you ever go through a trial and feel like you didn't do a very good job? Did you ever go through a trial and not feel that way? <laughs> I mean, seriously, let's just be real with each other. I mean, you, you go through a trial. First of all, you have to realize it's a trial. You waste a lot of time wondering what's going on. Then you feel, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm in a trial of my faith. And then you make all kinds of mistakes. You get mad. You say the wrong things. You, you, know, you, just, you just blow it. Because why? Because you're getting in touch with what we talked about earlier, the fact that you're, the, you're still a pretty bad sinner. But you know what the Lord would say to you? He'd say, Gene, I saw that coming. I knew that was going to happen. And I prayed for you before it happened. And when you, that when you came back from all that stumbling, that you would be stronger and that you would be able to strengthen others. This is what it means that Jesus Christ prays for you. It, it's... Amazing. If there ever was a time to be slain in the spirit, it would be right now. Thinking about how amazing it is. Do you ever wonder exactly what Jesus prays for? Well, that same night before he was crucified, he prayed for you. And I think it gives us a good indication of how he still prays. Or maybe the, the theme of Jesus Christ's prayers, you might call this. He prayed for our preservation that night. John 17, 11, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them through your name, those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. And so he prayed for our preservation. He prayed for our perfecting. He said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify means to perfect. He prayed for our unity. It says in verse 21 of that chapter, that they may be as one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. He prayed for our presence in heaven with him. John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me be with me where I am, that where they may behold my glory, which you have given me. And so if Jesus prayed for our preservation, for our perfecting, for our unity, and for our presence in heaven, shouldn't those be the major themes of our lives? The things that we're looking for to be taking place in our life. Because the Lord says, hey, I live to pray for you. It's all I want to do, Gene, is pray for you. And here's the kind of way that I pray for you. And so we should be looking for this. Let's talk about Jesus praying for our preservation. We saw an example of it in Jesus' prayers for Peter. You know, it's okay to be delivered from a situation in the world, but you might want to focus on being preserved through it and to be enabled while in it, or at least after it, to give a testimony to the Lord of His grace that is always sufficient. You understand? The Lord said, I'm, I'm, I'm praying that you will be preserved. Now, he can take you out of things. He does deliver you from some things. That's great. But many times he wants to be with you through it. Let's talk about Jesus praying for our perfecting. Don't let any experience be wasted. Let it perfect you as gold is refined in a crucible. Not all things are good. Far from it. But with the Lord, all things can work together for the good. Let's talk about Jesus praying for our unity. Be active in the church. Don't remove yourself from fellowship. Remain one with the body of believers. Uh, it's, it's amazing to me how often uh, the, the, the first thing that Christians want to do when they're in severe trials is divorce themselves from the body of Christ, is to go away and, and not come to fellowship anymore. And it's just the opposite of what you need to do. Do you remember the Adams Family? Remember that crazy family TV show or even the movie? 
Remember Thing, the disembodied hand that performed a variety of functions? <laughs> He'd just pop up everywhere, and he, and he was very useful. He always had something useful to do. There's no such thing, get it, pun intended, when it comes to involvement with the church. You're to be connected. A lot of Christians think they're the thing. Oh, if you need me, I'm there. I'll grab on for you. I'll snap my fingers for you. I'll, uh, I'll do whatever I can as a hand for you, but I don't really want to be connected. I, churches have burned me in the past. I don't like being around other Christians. Uh, Christians are weird. Yeah, there, you know, there's a million excuses. And so I'm just, I'm a Christian, I love the Lord, but I'm just a hand that's in a box floating around the universe. And the Lord would say, yeah, I'm the head, you're the body, hands need to be connected to arms and, you know, all of that kind of thing. And so think about it. And so let's talk about eternity. Sometimes even with Jesus praying for uh, us, the outcome from our point of view on earth, it's going to be negative. And that's a weak word. It's going to be terrible. In the 2,000 years Jesus has been gone, in those two days, a lot of terrible things have happened in your life uh, and in the life of the world. No matter how severe things get, you can and you should look forward to eternity. There's a third thing Jesus has been doing for you and I. He's been preparing a place for you in heaven. John 14, you know these verses, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus' followers had every reason to be troubled. After three and a half years of miraculous ministry, he was announcing to them, his departure. Now, he had been talking about this for some time, but they just didn't quite understand. And I don't know that I would have understood or that you would have understood either. Uh, it just, the things that Jesus was talking about, going to the cross, rising from the dead, I mean, it was all kind of in a dimension that they couldn't understand. But now he was telling them, hey, I'm leaving. I'll be gone. And he told them it was going to be a rather violent departure as he would be illegally tried and beaten and then crucified. And so they had a lot of reason to be troubled. You and I will have good reasons to be troubled in our lives. Many of you are troubled on some level right now. Uh, and, you know, maybe you need to put a good face on it. Uh, maybe, you, you know, maybe you're a glass half full kind of person. You know, but, you know, quite honestly, terrible things happen to people. Terrible things are going to happen to you if you live long enough. Uh, it, it just goes with the territory uh, of living in a world that is dominated by sin, whose ruler, the Bible says, is the devil, who was a murderer and a liar and a thief from the beginning. That's what he's all about. There is a warfare going on in your life to steal from you, to kill you, and to lie to you. Uh, and that's, you know, it's gonna, you're going to intersect that sooner or later. And so we have a lot of reasons to be troubled. And so Jesus says, hey, wait a minute. Don't let your heart be troubled. And the key, he says, is believe. Trust would be a good way of defining the word believe in this verse. Despite all the good reasons to be troubled, you're to trust God. The tonic for heart trouble is trust. And that's why we have the word of God 
to assure us and to comfort us, to read the stories therein and see the outcome. Um, again, you know, Hebrews 11, uh, the faith chapter, a lot of great stories of faith there. Daniel's thrown into the lion's den. The lions decide, you know, that he's a friend. The angel shuts their mouths. Daniel is delivered. Instead, his tormentors are thrown in. They get torn to pieces. Yeah. Right on, you know. And a little bit later on in Hebrews 11, it says, and then there were those who lived in caves and uh, who never had homes and who were sawn in half. They were beside themselves with, uh, with grief. But uh, anyway, well, you would be. But, uh, and so, you know, and, and wait a minute, time out. What happened to these last half uh, people? Nothing happened to them. Uh, that, that's just, that's what happened. That's why Jesus said a little bit ago, he goes, hey, eternity, let's, maybe you just need to start thinking a lot more about eternity. So you have a lot of reason to be troubled, but you can trust God because his promises to you are yes and amen. Now we're focusing on Jesus preparing you a place. He called it a mansion. Some translations minimize the place by calling it a dwelling place. I just read an article about a former shopping mall that has been converted to many apartments. Maybe you've seen that Facebook posting of the trend towards extremely small houses. Have you seen that? Little tiny houses. They're like four or five hundred square feet where everything is right there. You know, you're cooking your meal while you're asleep or something. You know, it's just, and, and they're so cute. Or maybe uh, you've seen the stories about preppers who are planning to live in small shelters or in caves when it happens, you know. And, and so there's a trend in this direction. Those are dwelling places. We're getting mansions. Now, we're not told too much about our homes because, after all, they are custom-built to suit everything that the Lord knows about each of us. My brochure would be totally different than yours. And so if I went into New Jerusalem and, and was looking at it, you know, the, the brochure for homes, uh, I'd have to, it would be custom for me. We do know a lot about the construction of the city that our mansions will be in. It is the new Jerusalem that we're told comes down out of heaven from God. Seeing how it is planned out and constructed gives us some idea of our mansions within its walls. And so let me just read you a passage from Revelation chapter 21. There came unto me one of the seven angels, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and he showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, and her light was like a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. And the foundation of the wall of the city was garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth was an emerald. The fifth, sardonyx, the sixth, sardius, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, a topaz, the tenth, a chrysophorus, uh, the eleventh, hyacinth, the twelfth, an amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every gate was one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, as if it were transparent glass. Let me just concentrate for a minute on the building materials. They're the most precious gems and minerals extraordinary in their brilliance and size. I mean, who has ever heard of a pearl, one pearl large enough to be the gate of a city? 
Not just a door. You like our new door, by the way? <laughs> Not just a door. You can't really get that excited about that door. It's a really nice door. It's a fiberglass door with modern panic hardware. <laughs> We're safe in an emergency now. The old hardware came, I think, from, you know, ancient Jerusalem or something. You know, we could never, the door never, and you think, I'm kind of excited about it, you know? I mean, but imagine if that door were a, a pearl, one pearl that had been carved out, and then think, well, wait a minute, no, he's talking about the gates to the city. You've seen some of these magnificent cities in the movies. Where do you get a pearl that big? Where is that oyster? <laughs> That is one scary oyster, I'm telling you. I think they could do a, a movie about that, you know? The irritant is like a, it would have to be like a, a destroyer, an aircraft carrier, you know, and stuff. What happened to the Enterprise? It's in the oyster. It's becoming a pearl. I mean, it's crazy. And so, one per, so, now what do you think about that? Now, I've heard it said that gold will be so common, it's being used as asphalt. But that devalues what we've just read. That's one way of looking at it. That's stupid. Because let me ask you this. Well, it is. I'm sorry. What do we do with precious stones and gold today? Or better yet, what do your wives want you to do with them? They want you to buy them and have them set in jewelry that you give to them to show them how much you love them. Your eternal home will be fully furnished. It's going to be rent-free, all utilities paid. It will reflect the Lord's love for you in minute detail. It will be extravagant, but mostly it will be insightful. It will be just what you would have built if you had unlimited resources from the entire universe and if you knew yourself perfectly. I've seen some custom homes um, and some of them are cool. I mean, and, and, you know, you can't help it. You know, you look at these magazines and go, oh, man, that is so cool. I wish I had that. Coffee comes right out of the sink. I mean, it's, right, it's fantastic. You know, there's that, it just, wow, it's a coffee bar right there. And, and you know, there's built-in espresso machines and all that. And you think, wow, that's cool. But you know what? As soon as you do your house, somebody else sees it and says, I can improve upon that. I can make that so much cooler. And then you think, oh, why didn't I think of that? Another six inches and I, it would have been perfect. And so then you demolish your house and you rebuild. And, and it goes on and on. This is, hey, the Lord has unlimited resources. I mean, if he thinks, I wonder if Gene would like a pearl for a door. Hey, you angels, go find me a seven-foot pearl so that I can machine it into a door for Gene. And, and, and he has incredible skill, right? Uh, I mean, we're talking about Jesus who created the universe, the creator of all things. He said, now, that was good, but it's nothing like the house I'm going to build you. I mean, Matt, that's the truth. That's what's happening here. Because creation is just a backdrop so that we can have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and he can shower his extravagant love on us by building us this mansion. There's a line from a Benny Hester song that has stuck with me for the past 38 years. It's about Jesus and it goes like this. Though some know me well, still nobody knows me like you. There will never be a person, no matter how close even you are to your spouse, 
that knows you as intimately and as perfectly as Jesus Christ. And so when he says, I'm going to build you a mansion in the new Jerusalem, it's something really special. It's not a dwelling place. It's not, you know, three square meals in a cot or anything like that. It's, it's something amazing. And if you're thinking, oh, I don't really care about that, well, you should because Jesus cares about it. Perfecting, praying, preparing. That's what our resurrected Jesus has been doing since he arrived in heaven. It occupies his time around the clock, day in, day out. He lives for this stuff. He lives to minister to you. It's all for you, personally, individually, intimately. In the last book of the Bible, in the Revelation, Jesus says to every one of us, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Today we call this a pop-in. Do you understand the pop-in? You're sitting there minding your own business at home and there's a knock. I, I, kinda, I do miss my wooden podium because I can't knock anymore. I don't, I mean, let me try. Yeah, it's just not the same. But anyway, there's the knock and it's somebody that wants to pop in. Your laundry's on the floor. You know, you're wearing your jammies. You haven't done the dishes in two or three weeks. You know, that kind of a thing. You know, are you a big fan of the pop? I'm not a big fan of the pop-in. Uh, but Jesus is always knocking, loving to pop in. The unannounced visit to have a talk with you and to stay long enough to be invited to dinner. So Jesus says, hey, I'm, I'm, not, I'm knocking at your door. I'm going to pop in. And then how about we have dinner? How about we spend some time together? Now, I told you we're going to leave time at the end of the service for you to spend time with the Lord. That time is now. The Lord is knocking. He wants to pop into each of our lives. Forget the person you brought who you were hoping would get saved or would get changed or, or you know, be transformed. And think about yourself and your relationship to Jesus Christ. Your perfecting, for example. The preparing that he's doing for you the praying that he's doing for you. And let's spend some time with the Lord opening our hearts to him. Amen?